0: Japan is well known as the only country in the world to suffer atomic bombings, first at Hiroshima on August 6, 1945, and then at Nagasaki on August 9th. These two local bombings were instrumental in leading to the surrender of the Japanese Empire and the end of World War II. But it was arguably a third, lesser known nuclear experience that sparked Japan's opposition to nuclear testing and commitment to preventing another Hiroshima-style disaster. This third event was the so-called Lucky Dragon No. 5 Incident, resulting from the 1954 Castle Bravo hydrogen bomb test at Bikini Atoll. What went wrong in 1954? What impact did this incident have both domestically in Japan and internationally? And how did this incident ignite nuclear hysteria in Japanese pop culture? I'm Anoop. I'm Edmund.
1: I'm Zak. And, and this is a Japan,
0: Japan on the Record, record special, special student, student podcast. podcast. So we've all heard about Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and we understand those events well. But for this third experience, the Castle Bravo hydrogen bomb test, and furthermore, the Lucky Dragon No. 5 incident, I have Zach here
1: who's been studying these incidents, and he's going to provide more information regarding them. Thank you, Anoop. So the Castle Bravo incident was the first in a series of high-yield thermonuclear weapon design tests conducted by the United States, in Marshall Islands, as part of Operation Castle, on March 1st, 1954, the device was the most powerful nuclear device detonated by the United States. Castle Bravo's yield was 15 megatons of TNT, 2.5 times the predicted 6.0 megatons, and the 6 megatons was 400 times stronger than the Little Boy, while the f- actual testing was a thousand times more powerful than the Little Boy. Due to the unforcing additional reactions involving lithium, it led to the unexpected radioactive contamination. And so you mentioned the
0: radioactive contamination. What were the long-term effects of this contamination, and was there any
1: compensation given to the inhabitants of the Marshall Islands? Right. And the inhabitants of the islands were not evacuated until three days later, and so they suffered from radiation sickness. Ultimately, 15 islands and atolls were contaminated. And by 1963, Marshall Islands natives began to suffer from birth defects, as reported. And by 1995, the Nuclear Claims Tribunal reported that it had awarded $43.2 million, nearly its entire fund, to 1,196 climates for 1,311 illnesses. All right. So, can you tell me a little bit more about the international response to this experience then? Right. The blast inside international reaction over atmospheric thermonuclear testing. Castle Bravo triggered a backlash around the world against atmospheric nuclear testing. The United States was not the only country conducting this testing during the time, nor was it the only one to test in its territorial holdings. Further testing was conducted by Soviet Union, the United Kingdom, and France. Later in 1954, Indian Prime Minister Nehru called for a moratorium on testing or standing still agreement between the U.S. and Soviet Union. He said, No country, no people, however powerful they might be, are safe from the destruction if this competition in weapons of mass destruction and cold war continues. Now to get a closer look at how this actually affected
0: Japan as a whole domestically, you can also take a look at the Lucky Dragon number 5 incident, which is closely connected with the Castle Bravo hydrogen bomb testing. So can you please tell me a
1: little bit more about the Lucky Dragon incident, what it is? Of course, so the Lucky German number 5 was a Japanese tuna fishing boat with 23 crews. It came in direct contact with the fallout, which caused many of the crew to grow ill due to radiation sickness. And was the tuna fishing boat actually inside of the designated danger zone? No, in reality, they were 40 miles away from the
0: danger zone. So then, this must be related to the, the yield being much higher than expected. So, following this, can you tell me a little bit more about the first-hand accounts of what the
1: testing looked like? Uh, So, according to one fisherman on the boat, seven minutes after the initial blast of light, one fisherman heard a double clap of thunder. Two hours later, there was a ring of white dust. The ash was coral dust sucked up by the bomb blast and coated with U-238 fission products. As soon as it landed on man, it caused burns.
0: And for those who don't know, U-238 is actually a uranium isotope that is used in the production of
1: nuclear weapons. So continue on my topic. One member died of a secondary infection six months later after acute radiation exposure, and another had a child that was still born and deformed.
0: Uh, Can you tell me more about the
1: radio operator Aikichi Kuboyama who actually fell victim to the bomb? Yeah, so there was some dispute about that person's death. The Japanese government claimed that he died as a result of the H-bomb testing. The American government countered that he died from a botched blood transfusion. Before he died, Kuboyama employed, Please make sure I am the last victim of the bomb. And as you
0: mentioned earlier the nuclear contaminants from the hydrogen bomb testing fell on the crew but actually as it was falling on the crew it also fell into the surrounding waters of the area and by the way of the water being contaminated the fish that the crews were picking up were being contaminated as well so while the government managed to bury all of the tuna that were heavily irradiated from the lucky dragon boat there were countless other fishing vessels in japan who were still picking up fish and bringing them back to the people and as soon as the fish that they had brought back were found to be irradiated as well, this caused the fishing industry in Japan to come to a grinding halt, and it had a very big effect domestically.
1: How, how does this reflect in pop culture?
0: You can see this reflection actually in two movies that were released. The one I'm going to be talking about is well-known now. It's called Godzilla.
1: Wait, Godzilla? You mean that big monster movie? <laughs>
0: Yeah, at first sight it does seem like a monster movie, but there's a whole lot more beneath the surface. In fact, you can see the link between Godzilla the movie and the Castle Bravo testing in the Lucky Dragon incident and the opening scene of Godzilla. When this movie came out, people didn't know what Godzilla was, so when they witnessed that boat witnessing a flash and then burning and sinking to the bottom of the ocean, their first connection must have been to the Lucky Dragon incident instead of Godzilla, which we later find out was responsible for sinking the boat. It was released November third, 1954, only a few months after the hydrogen bomb testing at Castle Bravo took place. In one sentence, quoted from the producer of Godzilla, Tomoyuki Tanaka, Godzilla was the physical manifestation of the atomic bomb. This movie was basically a direct response to the Castle Bravo tests at Bikini Atoll. The proximity of their release dates, as mentioned earlier, is no coincidence, and Godzilla is actually conveniently mentioned to have been disturbed from its deep underwater natural habitat by underwater hydrogen bomb testing. In the movie itself, Godzilla is this hulking behemoth of 50 meters tall, or 164 feet. And today, while he would be dwarfed by the massive skyscrapers that exist in big cities, you have to remember that when this movie came out, Japan was a country that was still reeling from World War II. Tokyo was firebombed to ashes being constructed mostly of wood, and Hiroshima and Nagasaki were flattened and irradiated by the first and last two nuclear weapons to be dropped on a civilian target. 50 meters was incomprehensibly towering, and the fact that this monster left not just trampled towns but a path of radiation in its wake was very telling of the social commentary it was making. Even the JSDF, or the Japanese Self-Defense Force, never stood a chance. The sheer force of an atomic bomb, or Godzilla in this case, just completely circumvented them. If these references weren't blatant enough, there is literally a scene in the movie when a woman laments, saying verbatim, I barely escaped the atomic bomb at Nagasaki, and now this. With this referring, obviously, to Godzilla. The hospitals were flooded with radiation sickness patients, mirroring the nightmare scenarios of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. When the main character, Dr. Serizawa, finally finds the Godzilla killer, so to speak, the oxygen destroyer, a weapon beyond the atomic bomb and destruction, he's reluctant to use it. It's not until he sees all of the death and tragedy of Godzilla's destruction that he finally decides to use it, but with his own compromise. He feared a snowballing of nuclear weapon production that manifested itself later in history as the Cold War. In the end of Godzilla, When Dr. Serozawa goes to use his Oxygen Destroyer, he sacrifices himself with the Oxygen Destroyer to take down Godzilla, wanting to take the notes that could destroy the rest of the world with him to his grave. Later on, another main character named Yamane brings forward a somber thought that if this nuclear testing continues, another Godzilla may rise in the future. Another Godzilla, another Hiroshima, another Nagasaki, another Castle Bravo or Lucky Dragon. And with this, we've looked at the physical manifestations of the damage of the nuclear weapons and the fear that it created. But we haven't entirely considered the psychological effects in pop culture, and how they've been considered. And now that I've finished discussing Godzilla, I'm going to pass it on to Edmund, who's going to tell us about Akira Kurosawa's I Live in Fear. Thanks, Anu. And also, that is correct, guys. This is the same Kurosawa
2: that did the most really famous films, such as uh, *Rashomon*. Uh, Seven Samurai, but he also did touch upon a lot of present-day films such as the one we'll be talking about today, um, I Live in Fear, which touches upon the psychological fears and hysteria associated with nuclear power during the post-World War II era. Like you said, Godzilla represents the material manifestation of nuclear fallout. I would say that the movie I Live in Fear, which was released in 1955, one year after Godzilla, would represent the psychological fears that were manifested in the Japanese population at the time. And so I'll just give you a brief kind of a plot of summary of the film. So basically the main character, Kichi Nakajima, who is the business owner of a foundry, he starts to get very overly worried about the potential that nuclear bombs could actually devastate and destroy the island and population of Japan. And in so, he uh, starts to develop this plan to move to Brazil because that's like away from relative danger from the effects of nuclear fallout. So he tries to convince his family to move it with him, and but in doing so family deems him incompetent which we could just kind of say that he saw him as clinically insane so as a result they go to a family court to settle this business and during this discussion they do deem Nakajima clinically insane but despite this Nakajima is still very devoted and committed to moving his family to Brazil so he actually burns down his foundry and makes sure his family can move with him but you know that never happens so what ends up happening is that he just goes to insane asylum as a result.
0: And so now that we have a basic understanding of the plot of the movie... I'd like to ask you, what's the underlying social commentary, and what's the root message that I Live in Fear seeks to distribute? Yeah, great point, because actually after they take
2: him to an insane asylum, the doctor actually comes and they start to question Nakajima's thoughts, and that brings up the great question that really does represent Japan during this time is, are you incompetent if you worry too much about the effects of nuclear follow and bombs, or are you incompetent because you're not worried at all? And I think that's very true to its word, because during this time, especially after the effects of the Lucky Dragon incident. People in Japan weren't sure how this contamination can affect the population on a national scale because, like we said, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, as devastating as they were, they only affected Japan on a local scale, whereas the fact that many fishing boats were still around the Pacific Ocean during the effects of all those nuclear bomb testings, there was a real good chance that the whole island of Japan could have been contaminated with nuclear fallout.
0: Right, in the way of the fishing, being, the radioactive sickness would have been spread through something as innocuous as fish, which is a staple in the Japanese diet. Yes, correct, exactly.
2: So as a result, this film pretty much represents the minds of the Japanese during this period of time with the amount of hysteria they had of nuclear power.
0: Thank you, Edmund. And now as we've seen through the third nuclear experience of Castle Bravo, the Lucky Dragon incident closely linked to both Godzilla and I Live in Fear, the nuclear fear was rampant throughout not only pop culture, throughout the global stage, and through Japan itself. With the advent of this nuclear age in post-war Japan, the world had been forced into a situation where total annihilation was simply a button press from realization. I'm Tristan Grunow, and this has been Japan on the Record,
2: a podcast where scholars and academics bring their expertise to bear on issues in the news. Pan on the Record is hosted and produced by Tristan Grunel at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, B.C. Thank you for listening.